You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. Uh, I do want to apologize to everyone for last week. We didn't get a show out. Uh, I was traveling with my family. Uh, My girls are getting old enough that they really are starting to enjoy exploring the world and going places. So we went to, uh, you know, we went to Eureka Springs for a few days, saw some caves, ate some good food and then returned home. Um, well, that's so. just about my idea of a perfect trip. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it, it was it was good. I'm not going to bore everyone with the details because that's not why we're here. We're not we're not the travel show. Maybe maybe if I get to do more traveling, we can do some traveling specials or something. Uh. Right. Well, and then we just had a crazy week here because you know doctor's appointments and uh, my husband was home due to rain and anybody who's ever had a spouse home whenever they're used to you know, you're used to them going off and it's like I love having him around but it messes with my rhythm so bad and then y'all guys were here for a night yeah yeah we we did visit for a little bit so yeah we're we're working towards now that uh things are kind of getting into a rhythm we're going to try to start recording ahead so that next time we travel we won't be missing those episodes. We really do hate to miss out on those. Um, yeah. Because I know that there are people out there who anticipate this right? because they comment <laughs> when there's not one. You're like, hey, where's the So Greg, we're sorry. <laughs> we're, we're trying to get back on track. Um, it's just, you know, as, as my kids are getting older and I have opportunities to do things with them, I, I want to do those things. Yeah. Well, they're only little for so long. So. Right. But we're. We're getting there, um, you know, trying to get things set back up. And this last year has just been a, a wild one for us in so many ways. And mm-hmm. I do appreciate everyone who's helped, you know, encourage us to stay with it during all the chaos. So um, absolutely. And, and hopefully soon this wall behind me is going to be bookshelves. So, you know, you can pause and zoom in and see what the titles are. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and in, in the process, you, we can maybe see phases of, of the right. bookshelves going up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, that's on the list. Yeah. Hey, uh, one thing I do want to mention just before I forget, um, is Molly commented mm-hmm. on one of the, one of the previous episodes where I had mentioned that the church we grew up in, uh, the, the general default setting was such that God was only, uh, protect, it was only, only sent Jesus out of some kind of contractual obligation. And, uh, I wanted to to kind of clarify that a little bit that the uh, you know because she mentioned there are some places in the Old mm-hmm. Testament where God does interact with the Israelites and and I know there's the scene with Moses where basically he's like I'm going to be done and then Moses reminds him of his promise and so there mm-hmm. are those times uh, and I I think though and from what I can tell those times are more when the children of Israel are being particularly obstinate or doing things that they know they're not supposed mm-hmm. to do. And, um, and yeah, I know we can probably try God's patience from time to time. Um, there are times when I worry about my sense of humor doing that a little too much. <laughs> um, but what I, was, what I was referring to specifically was just this general attitude that God doesn't enjoy any part of his creation um, right. and that he... He says that he loves us, but he doesn't really love us. And if he does, he doesn't really like us on top of that. That there's no delight in the love. And, and so, um, yeah, I wanted to address that. I wasn't trying to say that God never uh, does something because he's promised it. Um, but I just, I, I, I feel like when the, the church we grew up in, the, a lot of it, it was always just that and always just kind of used as a leveraging tool of like, if you're not following the rules, you're disappointing God. And if, and if you're following the rules, you're still a disappointment to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that there's, and that he, that he doesn't love us like a father. The language was there, but 
there was no follow through with that in the teaching. And so, um, that's the idea that God actually appreciates and enjoys being with his kids and wants to, to do good things for us. It was just not a huge part of the philosophy. And I think that's something that, uh, Sometimes when we talk about the opposite of that, we can probably maybe overstate our position a little bit. That So it, if we don't have all the context or the nuance, then mm. it seems like we're just throwing everything out when it's, we're, we really need to try to find that, that balance and that tension between the two positions. Because like you said, there is that, posi- that time when there is contractual, uh, kind of covenantal would be a better word response from god sure and it, so but yeah it's not yeah it's not either or it's a both and and yeah, so, so so yeah i didn't i don't want to negate those things but i, I just what i was referring to is are, are just the very legalistic churches that that it's always the carrot and stick philosophy and with a whole lot of stick and very little carrot yeah it, and so um yeah that, that's that's what i was referring to i wasn't trying to say that god never acts in that way. So hopefully I, that kind of clears things up. And I do appreciate the, mm-hmm. the pushback on it because it, it is something that I think we do need to, to be aware of as well, that God does honor those obligations because he is mm-hmm. honorable. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, there is definitely that aspect. And there are times when, when, you know, we do imitate God in that same way by honoring our obligations for the sake of being honorable. Um, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I hope, no, I hope that kind of clears things up. I, I yeah. Did it's really good when we else? have listeners. Well, it's, I was just saying, it's really good when listeners like take a minute and go, Hey, do wait, wait, did you mean it this way? Did you intend for it to come across that way? Or, you know, to, to really help us clarify and, and to be clear in what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we do have to watch, uh, as siblings, sometimes we can fall into our own shorthand yeah and so yeah uh and and it's it can be really difficult and i'm not trying to like make an excuse or anything it can be really difficult sometimes online and in social media uh to say something because you almost have to include like three pages of caveats and you almost have to include another two pages of nuance and it, it's it can be really difficult to get everything in so if we miss something by all means you know coming back and saying, Hey, what's going on? And, and it, how did you mean this? That's a really great thing to do because mm-hmm. it helps us get better at communicating what we're trying to communicate. Yeah. And, and so, and I felt like this was a good show to address it on because we are going into a Psalm that does kind of address that mm-hmm. kind of topic later on. So we kind of be looking out for that as we go along. Yeah, we're we're going to be talking a lot about that. So since I'm assuming everybody slept a little bit, or most listeners have slept a few minutes at least, but since our last episode, I know I have, uh, we were just getting ready to go into Psalm 22, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18. They're this, basically the same psalm. So I kind of wanted to recap some of the intro stuff just to get us back into that groove, and then we're going to jump right in. So uh, just a few quick points. Uh, this is the longest psalm directly attributed to David. So, you know, it, it's quite lengthy. It's dropped right in the middle of 2 Samuel. So you have the psalm within a narrative. So it's a very significant psalm because why do you break the literary mold or the, the uh, literary category to include a psalm within a narrative? And so we're going to talk about why that's important. Um, it's the longest statement by David. Uh, he he has not spoken this much at any time prior, and he will not speak this much any time after this particular psalm. And what I found to be interesting is this is one of the psalms, there's 10 psalms that are supposed to be sang when the Messiah arrives. So the this is uh, one of the psalms, it's one of the more important uh, one of the psalms, to, to sing specifically in the presence of the Messiah. So for that reason alone, it, it's a really good psalm to, to study. Um, and also to have this kind of song at the end of a significant character's life is very normal. We saw this with Jacob. We saw this with Moses. And then there's other literature outside the Bible where you would have a song by a person who's, you know, they've completed their life. They're mm-hmm. looking back. 
they're they're trying to kind of categorize all that's happened in a way that those who follow can actually make sense of their life journey and see what God did within it and kind of you know, sometimes uh, I was thinking of people like you know maybe Corey Tenboon um, and you know it would have been very easy for an outsider to look at her life and think oh, you know, she just had these horrendous experiences with uh, being in concentration camps and the the family she lost. But Corey actually went back and wrote her life story and helped people see how she experienced God even within that. And so sometimes that's what these Psalms do is they basically say, hey, even though things have been really wild and really crazy and I've gone through all of this this turmoil and heartache, Here's where I, within the chaos, saw God and why that's significant, and then how God is remembered when things are going right. So that's one of the reasons why this psalm is significant, because David's life, I mean, we've just gone through First and Second Samuel. It's been a roller coaster up and down of really great things and really terrible things and some really questionable things uh, that have happened to him and by him. So with all of that, we're going to jump into the first verse, and um, the first verse says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of the song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, this is almost verbatim with the intro that's in Psalm 18, and I'm not going to point out all the differences in, except for where there's significant uh, differences between Psalm 18 and this, this psalm. Uh, I'm assuming most of our listeners can read. So, you know, they seem to be a smart group. So what's curious about the psalm is we have a distinction between all the enemies. So, you know, this is the Philistines, the Midianites, the Moabites, everybody who has pushed back against David. This is Absalom. Uh, This is Shiva. This is Shimei. This is everybody who has done something to impinge or cause a problem with David's reign. He's been delivered from them. But then Saul singled out. And he is uh, spoken of individually and separately from the rest of the people. And so um, that has led to some crazy speculation about why, or not crazy, but some interesting speculation about why is there a line between these generalized enemies and then Saul specifically. So One reason that's been suggested is that despite the animosity that Saul felt for David, David never perceived Saul as an enemy, that he never saw Saul as somebody he needed to take out in order to become king. And we we obviously saw that demonstrated where David had several opportunities, at least a couple opportunities to kill Saul and take the throne. David never did that. He, He always addressed Saul and reminded his men that Saul was God's anointed king, and you do not touch the king. You have to respect God's decision. And then it was time for Saul to be removed from that position, then God would do it. David didn't need to get his hands dirty. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that option, which I, I think there's some, maybe some validity to that um, because, because of all those reasons I just cited. But then there's the option that Saul was actually the one that caused David the most hurt because Saul had basically acted as a type of a parental figure for David when he lived in Saul's home. He had married into Saul's family. He had been in the the palace and he had been a part of Saul's inner circle for so long. And then to have Saul turn on him, I mean, that's a kind of betrayal that leaves a mark that, you know, the, the Philistines just weren't capable of that none of the other enemies um, could kind of attain that level of hurt for David personally. So um, this, is, this is the reason why, or two possible reasons as to why Saul is singled out. Uh, another option, uh, option is that um, Saul was the greatest threat to David because you know, Saul was somebody that David might allow to get close. And so the two kind of play off each other, those last two reasons, and the idea that maybe the other enemies, they were doomed to failure because David was an Israelite. He was part of the covenant um, nation and community. So uh, God would impart supernatural uh, protection over David. So we wouldn't expect these outsiders to be able to hurt David. 
whereas Saul is kind of on equal footing as a fellow Israelite. And so to, but to get a good reason, you kind of have to, you have to read into the text. And so I, I think we need to be careful with how much we do that. But I do think it's good to stop and ask the questions and try to understand why would the writer do this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes just asking the questions, you learn a lot. And not even coming up with a good, good answer for the questions, just stopping to ask and ponder these things from some different points of view it can really help you kind of fine tune your thinking on some of this stuff. So I, I think it's really good to, um, it, it's good to ask the questions, even those we don't have good answers for. So before we go any further, I do want to make a one real quick reminder. We need to remember that these chapters are not in chronological order. Right. Um, yeah. So this is the last four chapters specifically. Uh, if, in case anyone's forgotten, we're working through that chiasm. This chapter itself is another chiasm. So we're going to look at what this chiasm has to teach us in particular, and then what the bigger chiasm has to teach us. Um, but we have to really look for clues as to where to place it within the narrative. And um, I think even more importantly than where it fits into the narrative is the clues to tell us how this informs us on how to read the narrative. And so we have two statements that really, I think, lend themselves to, to shedding some light on this topic. Uh, the statement itself uh, about David having generalized enemies and then Saul specifically, and the fact that it comes after um, the accounts of David and his mighty men defending against giants. So uh, one clue that is present in the fact that it's absent is that Absalom is not mentioned at all. And you would think that if we were talking about the one who had the ability to hurt David the most, the enemy that could possibly inflict the most emotional pain, you would think Absalom would have been there. And so um, if Saul is singled out because he is able to inflict this great emotional wound on David, why is Absalom excluded? Because obviously we saw that when Absalom was killed, uh, David... um, you know, David lost it. Joab had to kind of kick him in the butt and get him, you know, back in line and remember that and remind David that he's a king. And uh, this is one of the reasons why scholars think that this particular psalm may have been written prior to Absalom's rebellion. That if Saul is singled out because of his ability to inflict emotional pain, then um, you would expect that Absalom would have actually been included in the description. Uh, it had to be written sometime closer to the end of David's life and reign um, because the early part was a succession of conflict and war, right? the early part of his reign. So we've got, you know, we've got the Philistines and the, the Moabites and all the people I listed before. And um, to, to place this before Absalom's, um, or to place this after Absalom's rebellion is basically to say that Absalom and his supporters were not true enemies. But again, then that's where we get into that idea of, are the only true enemies those outside of Israel, or can they be someone that is part of the family? And um, I, I don't think that the, that's really a great way to um, read this, because I think it dismisses Absalom too, you know, too easily from the story or from the, the description of events that Dave is talking about. Mm-hmm. I think Absalom was a bigger part than that. Um, you know, the writer spent seven chapters. That's a significant, that's more than 10% of this book of, you know, there's 56 chapters in first and second Samuel. So out of 56 chapters, he spent seven of those telling us exactly how Absalom uh, impacts David's, um, David's reign. And uh, Saul's the only person who takes up more room in David's reign than Absalom. So if we're if we place the writing after Absalom's rebellion, um, and claim that Saul is singled out because of his significance emotionally, then um, we really do have to discount the impact that Absalom have. Which you know, like I said, that's kind of it doesn't make sense to me given David's um, reaction to to Absalom. Now, and the other thing we need to remember too is this is kind of 
a good illustration is you know, Saul received that very eloquent eulogy. He received that, that a chapter's worth, or almost a chapter's worth, of David talking about uh, how much he loved and admired you know, Saul and what, a, <clears throat> and what he meant to not only David personally, but also Israel. Absalom's death, I mean, all he could do was Absalom by Absalom. That's all, all he could do is continue to repeat that phrase. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that this is meant to discount or ignore Absalom. Uh, there's other issues with um, attempting to use the superscription as a way to, to place the psalm into the narrative. Uh, not only does it discount Absalom, uh, as an enemy, it discounts Absalom as a son. And then we're faced with um, this kind of dilemma, which is usually um, an indication of <laughs> that we're trying to use the information to ask a question that, that we aren't supposed to be asking or isn't that the, the text itself isn't supposed to be answering for us. So we've got to be careful not to try to use information that doesn't, that doesn't have Oh, sorry. Let me try that again. You gotta be careful not to use the text to gain information that's not within that piece of the text. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If it's not, you know, it's not suitable to answer the question, then maybe we're asking the wrong question. So, since these four chapters aren't written in chronological order, and we're not supposed to be presented as a uh, unified timeline, it we. We need to be looking for something else. We need to be trying to understand it in a different way. So one of the things we do know about it is that it's deliberately constructed as a uh, chiasm. It's deliberately constructed to deliver a theological message. And um, while I don't think we need to appeal to the chiastic form to understand all of it, uh, the fact that the chiasm exists and was chosen as the way to express these ideas is we need to to take it into account. So we need to back up and forget the chapter and verse markings. We need to remember that this, this book was not written with chapter and verse and consider what's immediately prior to this particular passage. And the heading of the passage, if you look at my ESV version, says war with the Philistines. But it could have just as easily been said, you know, said the war with the giants or victory over the giants. And remember that the, the headings are not inspired parts of the Bible. That's something that some editor thought this was a good idea. It's a useful tool to help us find certain mm-hmm. passages. We can play with those. So I'm not like trying to desecrate the, the scripture here by playing with these headings. Um, so we already talked about how those, those passages with the, the giants were probably stories that were a collection from multiple wars. And, you know, they were put together because they had that unifying theme of defeating giants. And notice that in that section, we have a generalized enemy. It's, it's the Philistines. All the giants were Philistines. And the specific um, enemy, which uh, were particular giants, the three out of four are called by a specific name. And if we think back to the first time we met Saul, okay, so this is where I had a lot of fun with this. We are told that he is a Gabor Kail, which is he's a mighty man of, of valor. I mean, he's that, that mighty man. He's, he's a valiant warrior. He stands head and shoulders over everyone else. And he took whoever he saw, who he deemed to be good. And we've talked about how those words, to take, to see, and what's good, connects us back to Genesis 6. Mm. And we've discussed how Saul is basically the closest thing that Israel had to a giant. He's, he was the, the person that was most like the kings of the other nations, which that's what Israel had asked for when they were trying to get a king. They wanted a king like the other nations. So what did God give them? He gives them a giant. And I think when we have the psalm placed here with a superscription, so we've got giants, and then the superscription, and if we pretend there's no division, then it's here to remind us that the real giant in David's life really was Saul. Because Saul was, he was the biggest threat. He was the one who actually posed a real, um, you know, he could endanger David's life like nobody else could. 
And he did try to kill David. He was the one who came the closest to killing David out of anybody mm-hmm. who David confronted. And so uh, I, I think that there's we need to be looking at that continuity within the text and quit imposing these artificial boundaries that are very simple to add to the text. And we, we have a real bad habit to just read our Bibles as they're presented. And we need to remember that, and you'd be very careful here because this could (laughs) sound so wrong. Chapter, verse markings, headings, those can actually impact the way we read. They absolutely do. They interrupt, they interrupt thoughts. And I mean, if, if you've ever been in a debate with someone who's just throwing verses out, who haven't checked out the whole context of a passage because they think the ver- these verses are little snippets of literally com- always true in every circumstance. And then, it's a complete thought. And that it's, yeah, because yeah, a lot of times, yeah, you're just getting a very small part of a sentence, especially with Paul, who's notorious for very long sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. And, and uh, especially, like for me, like the, it, it breaks up the narrative really bad. It's very hard for me to read with the verse markings to read uh, the narrative parts. It's, that's why for me, just listening through the, the Bible app, uh, mm-hmm. it helps me with the narratives because then I can put the whole thing together and I'm not going, oh, I'm in this chapter and then I get to the verse that I'm familiar with and then my brain pops right. it out of context because that's the one I've had memorized for all these years. And then I don't know exactly how it goes back. It, it really does affect how you, how you read the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, Ephesians 5 is actually one of the big offenders for me because uh, there's a sentence that um, takes up multiple verses. And there's actually a, a division break and the chapter is segmented mm-hmm. by a heading. And so when there's that heading there, people go, oh, well, everything before the heading applies to this and everything after the heading mm-hmm. applies to mm-hmm. that. And and, and it's wrong. It, it's misleading. And I don't, you know, I have to be very careful because I want to say, well, it's deceptive because that implies malice and intention and forethought. Uh, misleading could, you know, well, this is just the way it's always been done. And I didn't think to question it. Right. So uh, and don't want to attribute too much malice. <laughs> no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's malice. I think but there is, I mean, in, in first Corinthians, there's another one, um, you know, uh, you know, chapter 12, Paul's giving like all this information about spiritual gifts and things. And he gets to the end and he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, if you just read chapter 12, you're like, well, that's a funny way to end a thought, but it's not. Mm-hmm. He goes into 13. What's the more excellent right. way? He talks about the, what's chapter 13, the love chapter. He talks about how to approach people with love and regardless mm-hmm. of what your gifts are. And, mm-hmm. and this references back, you know, as I speak with tongues of men and angels, you know, it's, it's all connected if we're looking at how it's connected. Anyway, that's, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's really good because I think, you know, this, it illustrates what I'm trying to say here is if we were reading this as a book, we are reading this not in chapter and verse, but actually as a novel or, you know, a, a continuous narrative. And we've got these great stories of these defeats of of these giants that were just i mean and i was actually i'm gonna do a little sidebar here because i was thinking about this as i've had some time to actually pause and think about some of this stuff you know we went through that list of giants and the writer presented them like hey it's no big deal this is just how it's done in israel i mean there was kind of this nonchalance that was a part of the the narrative that if you read those accounts and they were from the Canaanites or they were from the Greeks or the Egyptians, these would have been like epic battle stories for each of these men. And mm-hmm. yet these men just get this verse like, yeah, he killed a giant, whatever, and no big deal. And so there is a level of um, confidence that, and just like, this is the way it's supposed to be, that was 
unique to Israel. And I did not realize that until I was actually listening to some of the Egyptian myths. Um, yeah, that's what I do with my spare time. I listen to mythology and different things. But uh, <laughs> I was listening to some of the Egyptian myths, and I was like, these stories are are so big and over the top. And yet what happened wasn't any greater than what these guys in David's army accomplished. And so that tells you something about the level uh, of warriors that inhabited Israel. These guys were pretty amazing. If they, if these guys were not considered a big enough deal to make a, a, a mythology around or to create this massive narrative around, then um, that's kind of status quo. That's pretty significant, you know, but, Here's here's the really cool thing that uh, I think comes out with uh, Saul and his his narrative is you know when when God appointed Saul over the king um, uh, appointed Saul the king over Israel you know, he was going to maintain that role and position all he had to do was to remain faithful and submit to God that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean there there was no reason for him to lose the throne other than the fact that he defied God. And then it was in that defiance that God said, hey, not going to have it. I'm going to appoint a new king. And this is when David's um, anointed as the, the new king over Israel. He is the Messiah of that time. And David's throne is not established through warring or fighting. It's established through faith and submission. It's not, you know, it's in not challenging Saul before it's time. Uh, it, it's not leading some kind of revolt to take the throne away from Saul uh, before he needs to. I mean, he actively has to step back from those opportunities to take Saul's life. Uh, when everything logical and wise and you know that would make sense to him would be kill him now and let's get on with it. And you know, and David. During this time, what he winds up doing, and it's good to remember this because it's been a while since we've talked about it, you know, David was gathering a following. Who, who's he gathering? He's gathering the distressed. He's gathering those who are in debt, um, those who are bitter in soul, and he becomes the commander over them. That's in 1 Samuel 22, so, you know, it's back there a ways. And there's this period of time where David is the anointed, rightful king of Israel. Mm-hmm. But he has to wait until God's appointed time for Saul to be removed. So where David had to step out in faith to confront Goliath, he actually had to step back in faith not to confront Saul. And so you see this, this kind of parallel um, who, with Jesus, where Jesus already is the king of the heavens and earth, but He's yeah. not there yet. <laughs> well, yeah, and I was actually thinking of a different parallel, and I was okay. thinking, uh, and I have nothing on this because it just occurred to me mm-hmm. as you were speaking, so it's, I think it's worth investigating. Um, what are the parallels that maybe we miss because of language? Are there any parallels that we might be missing because of language between uh, David's mighty men and the uh, people listed in the Beatitudes of blessed are the uh, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the... Uh, We're going to get there. <laughs> so, oh, is there something on this? Are we going there? there? Okay, Absolutely, great. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's probably going to take us a little bit to get there because I've got like 67 pages of notes and I'm not even done with this, this psalm yet. Uh, so, you know, hang in there because, I mean, there's a lot of background, but I think there's a lot of refresher stuff because, okay, so if we see a parallel between Jesus and, and David and the already not yet, so David lived this out in his life. Jesus is doing this right now. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, David is now ending the his reign. He's he's nearing the end of his life and he's singing this song and he has, but the thing is, he is king over Israel. He stepped into that destiny as king. It has happened uh, that God's promises were fulfilled. And so this is the absolute appropriate time for him to sing a song of thanksgiving, praising God's you know, protection and intervention on his behalf. But it, this is also why it is absolutely, not from a Jewish perspective, but from a Christian perspective, the, the perfect psalm to sing when the Messiah returns. Because... Now we have, you know, David having seen the reality occur in his own life. Why wouldn't we sing the similar psalm that whenever we see this reality occur in our life? So uh, 
I just, to me, that was just like really fascinating. And I, I've listened to a couple of rabbis uh, this last week, and it's really fascinating to me how as they're studying through David and Solomon, some of the things that they say, well, this is why David and Solomon's kingdom was never fully established, why we still have to wait for that to happen. And, you know, it, and going, it, but it has kind of mostly, you know, <laughs> I mean, so, but, but, you know, it's, it's that, that missing piece of Jesus in, in their theology where um, you can actually, you can see even Jews today studying their own Bible and still needing that, that missing piece of, of Christ in the theology in order to, to have God's promises fulfilled and where we as Christians can look back and go, Hey, yeah, it's, it's right here. You know, this is, this is where it is fulfilled. So, um, I do love the honesty of rabbis who are willing to, to say stuff like that because it tells me they are actually taking their own text seriously Mm -hmm. and they're not trying to, um, cover up deficiencies, if you will. Um, because I know a lot of times one of the, the temptations when it's a matter of faith is to do everything we can to kind of cover the cracks in our faith, especially for people who may not have an, enough knowledge to to be able to spot them. So anyway, with all of that, uh, 35 minutes in, we're on verse two. <laughs> and so we're going to actually begin the psalm. It says, he said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. Verse three, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Now, um, we have this list of all of these ways, these very poetic ways to describe God as the source of safety and security. And, you know, this is the guy who spent most of his life or a large part of his life on the run from a king with an army trying to hunt him down and kill him. And throughout Samuel, this is very much Samuel language that we have God referred to as a rock. And, um, you know, so despite the fact that this chapter may have been added later, and we talked about that, how that was a possibility, uh, those last four chapters, the entirety of those last four chapters, the language is still very consistent with the overall book of Samuel. And uh, we have one uh, tip off as to uh, which parallel passage we should be playing with in our minds within this, uh, this passage, and it's horn of my salvation. Now, uh, got to remember back, you're shaking your head, so you remember where this... I was nodding, first, nodding my head. Uh, nodding. You remember where the, we first encountered this uh, phrasing? Yeah, it was with Hannah. It's, yeah, First Samuel, uh, cha- second chapter, Hannah opens her prophecy with, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, and then she closes her prophecy with, the Lord will judge the end of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Um, so if you know Hannah's prophecy, which so often we do not include Hannah in our study of David, so we miss the fact that she is like this linchpin that all of Samuel hinges on. She's not just a pretty introductory character to kind of get us into the flow of the story. She actually is the, the, she's the catalyst for everything that follows. And um, so as we go through this, and since you've studied, hopefully, if you've listened along with us and you've been through this whole book, Hannah's song, it, it has been reappearing over and over in this book. But here we're going to see in the psalm, this shared vocabulary and this shared kind of vibe, if you will. Uh, am I allowed to use that word? I don't know if it's supposed to be too cool for me or not. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't keep track of what's cool. Okay. I just yeah. I just go with what I like. <laughs> well, I like vibe it's... here because you don't have necessarily like exact replications of the phrasing or the terminology, but you still have this this feel to it that that's very similar and we have shared themes and um you know this is one of the reasons why keyword studies will kind of leave you high and dry. You you, you really need uh to be looking for themes and, and shared elements beyond just words. And so um we're going we're gonna to find that, and I'm actually going to go through, after we get through all of this, and you'll probably forgotten I even said this by the time we get there, I'm going to go back and actually pull out specific verses between Hannah's prophecy and the psalm so we can look at some similarities. Now, 
The word for violence at the end of this uh, section of verses is very interesting because it first appears in Genesis 6. And when, this is when the world is corrupt. And the last time it appears is in the infamously misquoted Malachi 2.16, where the famous verse on divorce, and we've talked about that in a previous episode, but it appears two more times in Genesis, uh, once in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy. And from uh, there on out, it's pretty much used only in uh, poetic or prophetic speech. And it seems to carry the idea of malice, uh, it, not simply violence or necessary or protective violence. This is deep-rooted, self-serving type of violence that one takes joy in committing against another. So when David says that God protects him from violence, he's talking about something more than the warfare that has been a part of his, his reign and his journey to the throne. You know, David's wars against these other nations were, were necessary. That was part of protecting Israel. So David is saying that God has, has protected him from people who, who want to abuse him basically is what is going on here. I mean, could it, I mean, another, this is another question. Is it, is it possible? I thought I saw something in the window. Sorry. Uh, is it possible that it, it would also be like, maybe God protected him from, because you were talking about the type of violence someone would enjoy. Would it be possible <laughs> that God protected him from just being a king who likes to go to war? Um, who, who, likes indulging Very in violence so. um from becoming that type of person you know because kind of like you, you know like here's an example from our childhood <laughs> i've uh -oh. i yeah i saw grandma chop the head off a chicken <laughs> right but she always said she didn't enjoy it and i never would have classified her as a violent person right right but she was able to do it when the job required it. Um, I, I think, I think there is that level. I think there's very much so that yes, David is, I mean, he's a man of the sword. I mean, this is the reason why he's not allowed to build the temple is because there's so much bloodshed, but there is something in him that desires something more. I mean, you cannot read David's Psalms and, and realize that this kind of violence impacts him. It affects him. He's not immune to it, mm -hmm. that he has a tender heart beyond this. So, you know, I think there is that level. Not only was he saved from the kind of abuses that would have destroyed him, but he's also saved from the kind of abuses that he could have perpetuated. And, you know, that would have been very much in keeping and very expected for a king in this era. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you kill whoever looks at you wrong. This is how you maintain that level of respect. Why? Because the king isn't the guy who's the son of the last king. It's the guy who can beat everybody else up. You know, it's who can be the most violent. And for David to take the throne, not in an act of violence, not in this kind of revolt. This is what I was talking about with, with Saul. David took the throne in a completely radical new way that had not been seen in history before this, not in the same way, because he, he is not somebody who, who had to fight for the throne. He had to wait for it to be handed to him. Mm -hmm. Now, play with that in the New Testament context. Play with that within the Gospels. Think about what that means. I mean, now we're talking about something completely just mind-blowing and boggling, even for our own time, because we violence is still very much part of human nature. And we may not be going and beating everybody up physically. We might not be, you know, stabbing them with spears or swords, but we are still brutally violent and awful to our fellow human beings with our words, with our retreatment and actions that we think we can get by with without fear of retaliation. And so, um, you know, I, there's a part of me that I think the kind of violence that was happening in David's day, at least is a little bit more honest than the violence that's carried out today. Hmm. I could be wrong, you know, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think there's something really amazing about the fact that David's reign 
begins with something so completely, incredibly different than anything we, that we have seen. So, um, anyhow, uh, verse four says, I call upon the Lord who is working. Uh, so sorry, call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So this is not a declaration about the past is a statement of the present. Um, the, the verb tenses can get a little tricky here. This is a current ongoing state of David's existence. God is preserving him and protecting him um, from his enemies. I call, I am saved. It's a statement of faith that God not only has done it in the past, but he is going to do it in the future, that this is David's new norm. Uh, know that, um, sorry, that the other really cool thing that happens in this is that David says, not only does he do these things, he fully expects God to respond, that he fully expects God to, to actually you know, reply and, and not ignore him. Now, the idea that a man could, you know, actually provoke God to act on his behalf and to protect him and to save him, uh, the rabbis, uh, you know, they were cool with this because after all, a king was God, God incarnate or the, the representative of a God to a nation. So the idea that a God would have this kind of special treatment from a you know or sorry a king would have this kind of special treatment from a god um doesn't impinge on god's sovereignty too, sovereignty too much but we've got to remember that this is also the same psalm that we find in psalm 18 so these words are not just being spoken by the king this is all of israel this is every individual saying i call i am saved this is, they're saying this is an ongoing state of being for themselves. And um, so whenever we start talking about individuals, now the rabbis start having an issue with this. And so they actually said that these two phrases should be reversed, that it should say, I saved, I I'm saved, I called. And that way humanity, no single human being, even a king, couldn't say, you know, that they had dictated how God should respond to their prayers. So they should say, after I'm saved for my enemies, I call unto the Lord with praises. So um, I, I thought this was really interesting that even at this point, we're still dealing with this idea of how, how obligated is God to respond to our prayers and our cries for help? Is he obligated? And can we can we say that when I call out to him, I can expect and I do expect him to respond? And, and why do we expect him to respond? You know, the, these are still issues that we are wrestling with. And, and you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit uh, at the beginning of today's episode. So um, that this is something that we, I don't think we're ever going to completely put to rest. Mm -hmm. Because you know, we recognize that God is sovereign, uh, and we celebrate the fact that he's sovereign. He is not bound to our decrees or our words. Now, he is bound to his own promises and his own words. And so he actually, he's the one who says that when you call out to him in faith, that he will respond. And so, you know, in Psalm 18, where everyone, all of Israel is invited to sing these words, and later, as we as Christians adopt this as part of our faith heritage, we're invited to sing this, uh, these words. And, um, you know, in Psalm 18, it reads, I call upon the Lord who is working to be, who's worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You know, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. People, ordinary people, worship a God with a declaration that when they act in faith and when they call out to this creator of the universe, they can rely on his character enough to expect to be saved. You don't find this in any other religion. Right. You don't find this in any other ancient culture. And so this idea is just, it was so radical at the time and even you know, 
further into the you two, three hundred, four hundred years later that the rabbis say we got to rewrite it. Christians today still debate this, and um, you know, and I think a part of the problem is we we don't really grasp what it means to be sovereign. And there's this idea that sovereignty means that meticulous determination, where God controls every little aspect, and if He doesn't decree for something to happen, then it won't happen. And so. You know, that's not sovereignty. That that's, that's control. That's micromanaging. That's micromanaging. <laughs> um, sovereignty says that no matter what happens, I still have control over it. I, mm-hmm. I can still respond to it. I can still react to it. I can still redeem it. Uh, I don't have to have control over it in order to be lord over it. And so you, know, I, I kind of go back to because I mean we were taught that that. Um, illustration when we were kids about meat having to do with the bridle the bit and everything with the horse and you know meekness is uh what is it power under control yeah, strength under control under yeah. control and you know but i i kind of think about you know when you're riding a horse as a rider I, I i can determine which direction the horse goes but you know if i'm on a horse that i know and i trust and i trust my own ability to stay on the horse I don't try to determine where each foot goes, you know, right. that, that's ridiculous. I, I trust a horse to be a horse. Um, and so I think sometimes God trusts us as human beings to be who we are. And he says, you know, here's the path. And then you get to decide how you're going to put your foot down. And yeah, well, and, and, you know, the of course with sovereignty, I always think of uh, when Joseph, you know, when Pharaoh says, you know, I'm putting you in charge of my kingdom. Did Pharaoh stop being Pharaoh at that point? No. But he gave yeah. Joseph autonomy uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to rule the kingdom because he trusted, part, well, partly because he trusted Joseph. But, you know, so, you know, the analogy kind of breaks down there, I think, <laughs> to a degree. But, right. But most people wouldn't understand that unless you've listened to previous episodes. So, so you know, but I, there is that, that idea that just because whoever's ruling gives someone a certain domain to rule that doesn't mean that they're not still above them i i mean if Mm -hmm. if you don't i i guess some people just don't understand flow charts or something but um (laughs) that's well but i think for me it was kind of uh to see the fact that the rabbis were willing to like tamper with the text or at least desire to tamper with the text even at that early date, and to remember that this this debate and this this struggle to understand sovereignty it, it has been something that's been within the faith. I mean, since the very beginning, I, it wasn't reassuring uh, per se, but it was also kind of like, oh, well, yeah, this is just what we're going to do. It's just such mm-hmm. a big concept, the idea that God can actually be sovereign without meticulously determining everything, and, and that. People have always wrestled with this idea of redefining terms and even messing with this te- with the text in order to express their idea of sovereignty. Because, I mean, the fact that an ordinary person can ask God to do something and mm-hmm. expect Him to respond really is crazy. Uh, and I think we kind of have to be honest about the fact that that is it, it's just absurd. I mean, it really is. It's absurd that a human, normal human being can ask God to do anything and expect him to respond. But instead of saying, well, the, it's so absurd, it's impossible. We say it's so absurd, but his love is so much bigger and so much greater. And this is what makes it amazing. This is what makes it, you know, so wild that and worthy of praise is the fact that he loves us this much. Mm-hmm. And so the sovereignty does not erase the love. Right. Well, and it, it's, it, it's, you know, and, and of course, you know, every analogy breaks down somewhere, but you know, the, you know, the Bible talks about God as, as in the role of the father a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like, I have a, you know, a one, you know, well, I don't have any more, but my kids, you know, when they were not able to take care of themselves, you know, the fact that, whatever was going on, if that child got hurt, or if that child was hungry, or if that child needed a diaper change, my schedule got rewritten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, you know, because I care about my kids. 
it's Good not, creep, I'm doing. <laughs> it's it's not that my child all of a sudden uh, rules the household, but it's because I care about the well-being of my children and I want them to grow up and be strong mm-hmm. women. You know, it it it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm willing to take care of them because I need them to know that there's a certain amount of trust you should be able to put into people, uh, right. you know, and, and how to ask for the things you need. And, you know, so there's, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I've lost my ability to, you know, do whatever. Yeah, yeah. It means yeah. that I've, I, I take care of the people around me. I was just thinking, you know, you're talking about kids and I've got the new puppy and it, you know, if I, as a human being, can do this for a dog. You know, if I, as a human being can do this for a child or a a house plant, I mean, come on, this is, we take care of things. There's so much quote unquote lesser than us. And I want to be very careful with that because I don't want to be like, Oh, human beings are so important. I mean, we are supposed to be stewards of the earth. We're supposed to be good parents, but if we can actually rewrite our schedules or rearrange our lives to accommodate accommodate the the needs and even the wants and sometimes the whims of you know something that's you know categorically not as important or not as significant based you know on what categories you're using to uh, define these things then why would we think god could do less and and i think it's that kind of that backwards thinking where we think if something is so grand and good and high, it's removed because that's, you know, that's what we've been taught. Holiness is holiness means separate, but that the, the idea that that holiness, that separation might be the natural state, but the love moves us towards connection. It moves us towards community and covenantal relationship. And these it's the love is just as important as the holiness. And I'm not discounting the holiness. The holiness has to be there for the love to be significant. If there wasn't the separation, then the love loses its impact. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have those two things in tension. And David is saying, hey, we serve a God who we can call on. We can expect him to respond. Why? Because number one, he's powerful enough because he is so completely other. He's beyond our comprehension. And two, because he loves us. These things come together in a way to address the human condition and our human needs. And so we can't camp out on one side of that line and act like this is all there is. And too many people are, oh, well, God's sovereign. And that means that he's cold, he's distant, and he's controlling. And then, oh, God's loving. Well, he has no standards. He doesn't, you know, have any kind of rules that we have to follow. He just gives, gives, gives. And we're supposed to be happy about that. You you can't, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to have both of those things. Because if there's no standard, then he doesn't really love you. He's just letting you have your way he he's being lazy about you he's not he's not taking care of you he's not meeting your needs he's just abdicating his place as holy god so that you can control him if he's just holy and there's no love well then hellfire death wrath and damnation that's all we have to look forward to so you've got to have the two concepts in um intention with each other and it should melt your brain a little if you, it doesn't hurt your brain a little bit, you're not thinking about it deeply enough. So that's that's how you know that you're starting to get there. And even at that point, you still have so much further to go. Because the really cool thing about this psalm is we don't just stop with this this declaration that, hey, I called and I was saved. Right. David, the the next the next phase is David's going to tell us what this process looks like. And this process is amazing. I mean, this the process is the basis for some really great sci-fi novel that's waiting to be written if it already hasn't. And so, I mean, David at this point, he's already thinking in terms that defy human experience in order to give us a glimpse of what's happening in the spiritual realm with this God who loves us enough to actually move heaven and earth on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And so I I think that's probably a really good place to put um to to break. Put a, yeah. Yeah, put a semicolon and yeah. So okay, yeah. 
Yeah. Guess we can pause there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just kind of, just kind of getting re- started into it. But yeah, we'll take a short break, and uh, I say short. It's short for us. We're gonna try to record two today. Um, so, so we can so stop. So we one. don't. So we can stop having <laughs> holes in our schedule. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, but we're gonna take a short break, and then for you, it'll be next week. Uh, but in the meantime, be part of the conversation. Uh, Raven Creek SC uh, on the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is where you can find the website, and uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.